Hi, I'm Jess and I'm the oldest. Hi, I'm the oldest. I'm Shtee, I'm the dad and this is actually my podcast. And I'm Tommy, I'm the youngest. Welcome to the podcast. At the heart of hearts, we're all very creative. I've had a very interesting life. You've travelled all over the world. I remember being... Oh, interesting. This is not how I remember the story story. Pints are not a good measure for filling Jacobs as fuel. <laughs> bonjour from La Belle France. Bonjour from La Belle France. Bonjour from nice London. Um, and welcome to the Pod Clarks. The podcast where me and my sister Jess and me, Tommy, <laughs> ask our dad Stephen to tell us stories from his life. So, Stephen, what story do you have for us today? Oh, I've got a handful, but I'm, I must confess that I'm slightly worried um, because, I mean, we've built my life as being very interesting and perhaps most of the interesting things happened a bit later on, I don't know. But it's just so far, it's just kind of normal growing up tales. But I, I mean, they're quite entertaining for me, but I don't know if you think that's a problem or not. Are you telling stories chronologically? Well, I was thinking what I'm doing is a backdrop really to the it's a foundation to the exciting things that happen a bit later on so stick with us people because in episode 1000 <laughs> there'll be something exciting happening <laughs> in my life I promise you. but anyway today i thought i would talk about my university uh, experience because that is a little bit like a another sliding doors moment into the rest of my life because mm. i went to university with a good maths A-level and a terrible chemistry and um, physics A-level. And my chemistry A-level, I'm absolutely sure that um, if the pass mark was 49, I got 49. I, I, I mean, I, there was definitely no more than a point in it. Um, and I was astonished to have passed at all. But if I hadn't have got that third A-level, I definitely wouldn't have been accepted into Aberdeen University to study forestry. And if I hadn't done that, then none of the rest of my life would have followed. And we would definitely not be sitting here now. So one point in one exam when I was age 18. Crazy, hey? That is, yeah, no pressure on anybody who's about to take an exam, though. (laughs) (laughs) No, but you see, my life could have been even more exciting if I'd missed my (laughs) chemistry. Just don't know. But I, my family holidays when I was growing up were tended to be sort of hill walking ones. And I'm sure if you ask any of my brothers and my sisters, uh, who are all older than me, um, I was moaned like anything on those walking holidays because I was a little mini skimp who trailed along behind. However, it kind of bred in me a a love of the outside. And I I wanted to do forestry because I wanted to work outside. And so at the time, there were only four places that did a degree in forestry. And Aberdeen was definitely the furthest away from home in Scotland. So Was that why you chose it? It wasn't. It was because it was a, had, but 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 there is therein hangs a few of my tales actually because they, some of them surround around getting from Godalming in Surrey to uh, Aberdeen in Scotland, which is must be five hundred miles, I think. And um, I happen to know that Durham is exactly in the middle of those two places because I stayed there overnight one time, um, and mostly I did the journey in a series of old cars. Um, in fact, all cars from the 1950s. The predominant favourite was an Austin A30, uh, 1953, I think, which was a bit like a bubble car. It was all rounded at every corner. It didn't have any square bits to it. Um, it didn't have any heating. And uh, it was had these little trafficators that flap out to either side when you want to turn right or left. It didn't have any flashing lights. Um, and it was a bit of a brute, but great. I loved it to pieces. And its, it's number plate 
was OU060, which um, was really pretty to look at on the on the number plate. <laughs> OU060. <laughs> and I mean, if you had the accelerator on the floor and the following wind, you could do 65s, maybe 70 miles an hour, but mostly it was happiest at 55. So it's a long way to go in a car like that. And net result of this is that it quite often broke down. In fact, it always broke down on every time I did that journey, return journey, which I must have done four or five times at least, I think, um, during the three years I was there. And on one occasion, um, I just had all the tools stolen out of the boot of the car, which was really annoying. Uh, But I broke down and I hadn't got any tools. And I sort of coasted to a halt on the hard shoulder of the uh, M1 it was. Uh, I was desperately trying to I knew what the problem was um, because it was the uh, the fuel wasn't getting through and there was a now for those of those people who are listening who are interested in Morris um, in Austin A30s <laughs> some of them had an electric fuel pump to get the fuel from the tank to the engine and some had a mechanical fuel pump and this was a mechanical one and it was held on by two bolts only but you needed a spanner and I was trying to undo them with my fingers if you've ever tried to undo bolts with your fingers you not going to happen. It isn't going to happen. And I, I, I used anything I could find. I mean, I think, think, I think I had a spoon in the car, and I tried to use that. But it, I mean, it definitely was optimism, optimism gone wild. Um, and just as my heart was sinking, uh, what should come along? But a blue flashing light police car, which uh, sort of screeched dramatically to a halt in front of me on the hard shoulder. And you know, I mean, I, I even to this day. Not as a result of that, but always, if a police car turns up behind me when I'm driving, I immediately feel sick in my stomach and guilty as anything. And, uh, you know, I and, and begin to drive badly, basically, because <laughs> the police are, are following me. So I was immediately thinking, oh, now what am I going to do? I'm, I'm stopped. I can't. Anyway, he came out. Nicest bloke you are ever going to meet in your life, this officer. I kid you not. And he didn't quite say, hello, hello, what's all going on here then? But he more or less said that. And when I explained my problem, he said, oh, he said, you can borrow my tools. So he went to his police car and pulled out his police issue toolbox (laughs) and gave it to me and said, "Um, I'll just do another loop of the motorway junctions that I have to do. And he said, and if if you finish before I come back, um, you can just leave it behind the 200-yard marker at the next exit because it's 200 yards, 100 yards, and then the exit. And that's what he did. And he left me with his hmm. spangly toolkit and uh, I was able to take off these two nuts. And inside the fuel pump is a little valve, a rubber valve that's held in with three tiny screws. And those three tiny screws had wriggled their way out due to the vibration in the car. Oh. And that was flapping around. So tiny screwdriver back in, two bolts back on, back on the road. So did those three tiny screws stop your car from working entirely? Completely. And, and, and it works entirely absolutely completely i mean huh. i think car design in those days well, it's come a long way in in the intervening years but they didn't really think much about this, well servicing them but also um yeah what what might be better designed to stop it breaking down completely but yeah mm. how did you learn to fix a car like that um trial and error really i mean what happened was my sister rosemary lovely rosemary as we call her um <laughs> she when I was 17, 16, I think, she had a, a car that broke down. It was her first car. And um, the garage said, it's not worth anything. You should just throw it away. So she gave it to me. And it sat in our family garage for about a year and a half while I sort of tried to find out how a car worked. And we mucked around with it. So the, the state, the, there was nothing to lose, really. Mm. And my Mum and dad were very um, sort of accommodating. <laughs> the garage was taken up with this. Mm. And um, I mean, a lot of tales surrounding that 
car actually but uh, there was a problem with the axle and I ended up getting an axle from a garage from a scrapyard when you were telling that story it was making me think of um the story of you passing your driving test oh which I which I love as a story and have told a lot of times (laughs) better repeat it here then just in case people are interested I was doing my driving test and I was so keen to learn to drive I booked it for two weeks after my 17th birthday and um, I, you know, before I was even 17. And uh, because uh, I hadn't had any lessons, I had to use my father's car, which was generally very reliable. And the first astonishing thing was it was a woman examiner, which was amazing because I, I, in those days, I didn't know such thing existed. And she must have been one of the first, I think, because um, I'm sure that's not true at all now, but hopefully. But anyway, um, she was delightful. And um, off we went, uh, but a bit like being followed by the police, extremely nervous and um, prone to poor driving. But anyway, uh, in the middle of the three point turn uh, at 45 degrees across the road, the accelerator got stuck down in the car. It just revved at about four, four and a half, five thousand revs, making this enormous racket. And I just looked at her and I said, the accelerator's stuck down. And I, anyway, all I could think of was to jump out and open the bonnet. And I could see that it was a spring that had stuck. And so I just banged it with my fist and it <laughs> unstuck. And we carried on with 3.10, which I think did me a favour because I was sure that I'd failed because of that ridiculous um, episode. But I so I relaxed and drove well and passed. I, um, I, I mean, I, I sort of just love that whole story. I love that you booked it for two weeks after your 17th birthday. <laughs> but the kind of, is it confidence? Is it arrogance? Who really knows? It, is it it's, 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 it, But it's, it's kind of brilliant. And yeah. then you passed because you managed to get out and fix the car <laughs> mid-driving. I mean, I think of me taking my test at 17 and there's not a world in which I could have gotten out and fixed the car if it had broken. So presumably the bit where you got Rosemary's old car was before you could drive. That was when you were younger. So it then was, when you got yeah. to driving, you had all that knowledge in your brain already. Yeah, that was partly why mm. I could jump out and I knew how, how it was connected. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, that was a great experience. And I, I mean, you raised the issue of what makes us the kind of people we are, I think, Jess. I, I have ref- reflect on this all the time because I think... Earlier on, if you go back a year or two, when I was 14, 15, I, was, I, I wouldn't have said boo to any goose that happened to come across my, <laughs> my path. Not even and a single one. Not even one. <laughs> and, um, and yet I sort of somehow was arrogant enough to think I could pass and have a go, Joe. And as we'll find out as my life unfolds in future episodes, I mean, I've been put in circumstances which I definitely wasn't equipped or qualified to, 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 to handle. And, and that has pushed me to uh, be better than I would have been otherwise I think and and actually a lesson a life lesson is that over my whole career when I've been given or I've given somebody more responsibility than I think they can actually handle 99.9% of the time people step up to it and deliver in spades Mm. and go away feeling Mm. empowered and better and um, you know more fulfilled whereas the sort of our natural instinct is to do something ourselves if we think somebody else can't do it but of course then we're limited in what we can do so there's our life lesson that is something to remember for sure also by the way i i don't actually think it was arrogance that that made you book your test two <laughs> two weeks after your birthday i would imagine it was it was more of a it was more of a um maybe not totally thinking about like Wanting it and not thinking about the stakes, or I don't know. It, it was definitely just excitement. I mean, you know, it's yeah. kind of like I couldn't wait to get on the road. And I think because I was 
very quickly had my own car at 17. I have always thought a car is a massive privilege because none of my friends had it at all, you know. And, and so I was the, the driver or the person with the car. And something about that means that even today, I don't hold on to cars very, very tightly at all. And um, I'm always surprised when other people do. So, you know, here in France, it's great because the insurance policy um, policies can't cover anybody to drive a car. It's not just the people who are named. So, so um, yeah, we're, our cars are borrowed by all and sundry. And I think that's a great thing because m- most cars spend most of their life sitting doing nothing, which is stupid. Mm, yeah. And some people do that as well. <laughs> no, no, no present company. <laughs> Where were we? On the, on the M1 yes. with my fuel pump broken. Mm. Leaving the toolbox behind the... 200 meters. Yeah, fortunately, I remembered to do that. So, and I guess he got my details anyway. But um, so I arrived in Aberdeen the first on the first trip, and stopped to ask the way to the university. And the gentleman who answered my question was the uh, second most pleasant person you're likely to meet in your life. Uh, he was absolutely lovely, and he explained with great vigor how to get to the university. I did not understand one word. Because the Aberdeen accent is incredibly broad and it's uh, it's a lovely accent. But, for example, when you meet somebody, they say, felt like, which means what are you like, which means how are you? But if somebody comes up to you and says, felt like, you think, I don't know how to respond. To that. Anyway, um, he, I couldn't understand what he said, but I did eventually get to my hall of residence, which was Dunbar Hall. I signed up to this uh, forestry, forestry degree and... There were 15 people, I think, on the course, and it included two people called Stephen Clark. So, uh, <laughs> was one of them you or were there three? Yeah. <laughs> no, there were two, uh, including me, yeah. <laughs> but it turns out that if your surname's Clark and you're a, a male, the most common um, British first name for people called Clark for, for men is, is Stephen. So that we're all over the place. They crop up huh. here, there and everywhere. But he was Stephen G. Clark and I was Stephen J. Clark, which made it even slightly more confusing. <laughs> and there was one other significant difference is that he was totally dedicated, born natural forester. And I definitely wasn't. And so through the course, um, he was always at the top of the class and I was bumping around near the bottom. Um, I mean, you will both know that university is much more about much more than just getting the qualification. But I did get the qualification, but only just, a bit like my chemistry degree, I think, a chem- chemistry exam. And on one, one of the term uh, forest botany exams, our results were pinned on the notice board and they stuck a letter, a paper up with the two lists. And the first list were those with, with merit, who'd done really well. Second list were those who passed. And the people who hadn't passed, if there were any, just weren't on the list. So if you hadn't passed, it was always an awkward because you were, you, everyone was crowding around, sort of shuffling, looking over each other's shoulders, pushing to the front. And you're just trying to see whether your name's on it. And it's much more difficult to see if your name's on it when it's not on it than mm. if it is on it. Because you keep thinking it must be there somewhere. Anyway, mm. both of us were there, Stephen G and Stephen J. And we were shuffling around, looking on our tiptoes to try and read the list. And he was absolutely devastated. And I immediately knew there'd been a mistake. <laughs> because I'd got a merit, which, which definitely wasn't within the bounds of, of, of credible likelihood. Um, and he, hadn't, he wasn't on the list. <laughs> and actually, it's the only exam that I've ever failed or ever failed up there. But it, it was the very one that they, they muddled up our exam results, if you can believe it. Mm. So... I mean, I suppose I don't know if they muddled up our results 
any other time. At but another point, yeah, yeah. So I had to go in for a, a, an oral exam to try and squeeze through, but I didn't manage that. And they were very brutal in the oral exam and didn't treat me kindly at all. So I had to go back and mm. resit in the summer. But I did eventually get um, my forestry degree. But while I was up there, I was woken uh, one night by the porter of Dunbar Hall, where I um, was staying, which is a hall of residence. And he got me up because <laughs> he wasn't best pleased because in the middle of the dining room was OU060. My Austin A30 was sitting in the middle, in the middle of the dining room. In the middle of the room. dining room. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, they're not difficult to break into those cars. You can do it with a matchstick or a screwdriver, really. Um, and some of my... <laughs> Just got my matchstick and I break into a car. <laughs> well, and some of my so-called friends had um rolled in from the pub and um got it in in got it yeah (laughs) got it got it in from got it got it in from the car park and and pushed up to the i I just didn't know how it is is brilliant but i didn't know how how i was going to get it out because the it wasn't clear to me at all how they got it in because the doorway (laughs) wasn't it was a sort of a, a corner to turn anyway it turned out there was a um a sort of emergency sliding door exit for everyone to get out quickly. I, did, I didn't even know it existed. And uh, so the porter had slid that back and he and I both pushed it out into the night. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it was rather cool, except that it left a sort of telltale puddle of oil on the um, parquet flooring, oh. which, uh, which is there to this day if Dunbar Hall is still, uh, is still existing. We need to find someone that is at Dunbar Hall and get yeah. them to uh, verify this. We definitely do. They've redone like, the flooring. How possible is that? Extremely, I think. And while I, while I was there, we, um, I sort of thought the whole Dunbar life could be more interesting, really. And so I, um, I published a little in-house newsletter which was called the Dunbarbarian, believe it or not, and uh, with a clever, clever play on words. And uh, <laughs> every every time it had an article of some topical interest, it had a treasure hunt, which was the thing that people most read it for. It had um, sort of news of what's going on. And the the lady who sort of was on reception for the time that I stayed there, who was... She was absolutely lovely, heart as big as a mountain. And she was actually pretty much as big as a mountain. She was a very large woman, lovely woman. And she said to me in a broad Aberdeen accent, um, if you publish more than two two editions, then I'll buy you a rubber stamp that says Dunbarbarian, the width of an A4 sheet of paper, so that you can, you can, you can title it. And uh, we did. We published five, I think, in the end. So I got my rubber stamp. I'd love to know where it is now. It's not... <laughs> Three editions used the rubber stamp. Mm. Exactly, yes. That's it's so not, cool. It's yeah. not, but it was brilliant. Um, Do you think you still have it? I haven't got the stamp. I might have one edition of it. Um, it became a bit controversial in the end because people used to write letters in that were sort of satirical and um I wasn't I'm not sure I was altogether up to speed on satire in those days so <laughs> published things that people didn't necessarily approve of or in, anyway it was it was a bit of a diversion mm. but I was thinking uh oh yes and the other thing that related to my time in Aberdeen and OEO 60 was that during uh rag week one year which is the university fundraiser charity fundraiser um, somebody came up with the idea, and I don't claim responsibility for this, that we should kidnap the mayor, who was, they call him the provost of Aberdeen. And uh, he was like the mayor of the town. Oh, dear. And so anyway, they were looking, look, we thought we'd do it, and they thought they'd do it in a sort of 
um, like gangster type 1930s dress. And so they're looking for an old car. Down, 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 down. <laughs> oh, you're only 30. 60. Oh, yeah, 60. So I was commissioned to dress up as a gangster. And the, the police stopped the traffic around the town hall and, and we, I mean, we just swooped in with the, the headlights on, blaring the horn and screeched to halt and as far as that car could screech to a halt, which wasn't very much really, um, outside the town hall. And then people who were in there bundled out the there and he sat in the back. And the, the width in the back is very small. It's not very wide, this car. And so the two chaps who had who'd gone to kidnap him were sitting in the back seat with him. And I remember, just remember looking in the mirror and seeing these sort of chaps all crushed together. And I don't know, you know that ridiculous film that we used to watch when we were younger and stupider, um, uh, National Lampoon's Christmas, Christmas Vacation? I don't mm-hmm. know if you remember that film. But anyway, at one point they kidnap the, um, the, the head of the company because um, the character who's played by Chevy Chase... Um, spends the whole of the film dreaming of building a swimming pool with his Christmas bonus. And then the, um, the boss cuts the Christmas bonus. And so the, um, his brother-in-law kidnaps the head of the... Anyway, to cut a long story short, he looked just like that chap. The, 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 the mayor of the provost of Aberdeen was just like the head of the company in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. He was a very small chap. Uh, and we were on the front page of the Aberdeen Press and Journal, no less. Huh. Whoa. So was... was... Was he upset or scared by the kidnapping? What he it? knew it was going to happen. It was all set up. So, oh, is he? Yeah, he, he was doing it oh, for part of Rag Week. I should have said that. Um, right. Otherwise, the police might have shot well, his that's what I was involved. thinking. Yeah. Like, you shouldn't be kidnapping people. This yeah. is terrible. Don't do this at home. <laughs> Even if it's no. A, yeah. No, it was a good, okay. it was a good right. jape and a good wheeze. And so it looked like he's been kidnapped to everybody else, but they it was did. all just a set up. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, good. I, please, I won't be telling you off then. I feel like we've got our second life lesson here, which is don't kidnap people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it can go horribly Definitely. wrong. But one, and one good, very cool thing that came out of that was that the town hall had a big tower up it. Up, and um, uh, I can't remember the exact mechanics of this, but as a result of the having the, the provost in my car and taking him for a cup of tea back at, at Dunbar Hall, um, I got to ask him how possible it would be to go up the tower and have a look out the the top of it. And... Uh, he said, oh, very possible, he said, there's a key in um, reception and it's it's available for any resident of the city to go and and, and look at. Anyway, did that, absolutely fabulous, very sort of exciting thing to do because nobody does it because nobody knows there's a key that you can go and collect mm. from hmm. the reception. So whenever anyone came to visit, I used to take them up the tower and my both my sisters, the lovely Rosemary and the lovely Christine, as we call her, um, both came up to visit me uh, on standby flying from uh, Heathrow one time. Uh, I remember <laughs> we, we were doing everything on a budget and um, there were two rental companies in Aberdeen for students and one was called Rent-A-Rec <laughs> and the other, the other one was called Hire-A-Heap. <laughs> and uh, I discovered that Hire-A-Heap was slightly cheaper so we, we got this very nice car actually but sort of all bits falling off it. I'd say a heap sounds a little bit better than a wreck. Yeah. Yes. I'm, well, I'm I think... surprised it's cheaper but... I think rent a wreck is an American term and a wreck in American is slightly different meaning maybe. Don't know. Anyway, so Christine and Rosemary came up the tower with me, various people who visited, I think, and that was a, a good outcome. When I finished my university degree, I started filling in forms uh, to get a job with forestry companies. But, you know, my heart wasn't in it. And I can remember as clearly as yesterday filling in a form for Fountain Forestry, which I've I would imagine still exists. And um, 
I filled in the form and then I looked at it and I thought, well, I wouldn't give this person a job because it was so scrappy. I mean, it wasn't, you know, the, I'd, I'd done the best I could, but my writing wasn't that great. And it, I wanted to put more in than would fit in the boxes. And it was all horrible. But anyway, I sent it off and, di- and didn't get a job from them. <laughs> Not surprising. Oh. But they had this thing which they called the milk round where employers came and you had a day when you went to visit them on site in the university. And one of the employers was was voluntary services overseas, about which I knew zero, nothing at all. And they were saying, you know, we recruit graduates to go and um, save the world, basically. So I signed up for that and went for an interview down there and got uh, appointed to be a teacher of forestry in Zambia. And that will be the substance of our next podcast, I think, because uh, this... Sorry, I have to say, a cat has just jumped. <laughs> I mean, we got rid of every, every distraction possible, but left the door open. Oh, that pause was incredible. Yeah. I have to say, a cat, a cat has just jumped. Just jumped. <laughs> Sorry, for, for, oh. those, for those who are listening, the cat walked across, across our Zoom screen. screen. Yeah. Anyway, the yeah. cat is now City. taking part in the podcast. City, will you come and say hello to the podcast? See he if ne- you can get him to meow into your phone. No, no absolutely no, no chance. He doesn't do no anything chance. that you want him to. No. <laughs> oh, please, that's too cute. We've just got a full... We've just got a full cat... A full cat in the screen. A full cat on the screen. <laughs> For the, that, to that one point in my chemistry exam, which got me to Aberdeen, which got me my degree, which got me my job with VSO, actually then led on to all the exciting things that happened, happened later on. Um, so, yes, tune in for later. I, I made, it made me wonder, I'm sure you've got tales from your university experiences of things that should or shouldn't have happened. Oh, almost. Not that you're prepared to divulge to the world, I'm sure, maybe. Almost certainly, but, yeah, not off the top of my brain. No, um, I mean, the other thing about going to Aberdeen was it's an absolutely beautiful um, part of the world. It's right on the edge of the Cairngorms, which is a mountain mm. range. Well, you know mm. it, Tommy. And um, absolutely beautiful to go out at a weekend in the winter and, and go cross-country skiing. Um, oh, and a dream. Uh, yeah, it what, was. What I was wondering is, could you say a bit about what forestry is? Because is it... Planting trees? Is it managing trees? Is it looking after a forest? Is it all of the above? It's absolutely all of the above. And in fact, the the course, although I was sort of slightly negative about my participation in the, the course, it did set me up for life in the future, really, because it. I often say I'm a jack of all trades. I can do all sorts of things, but nothing brilliantly well. And that's what the forestry degree was like, really. It, it, it went right through from... Well, this is why I sort of was doubtful about the course at the very beginning, because our forest botany teacher, remember, this is the one I failed, in his first lecture, he said, my aim is to be able to help you, ladies and gentlemen, identify any species of British tree from an intercity 125 train at 100 yards in winter or summer. <laughs> and I just thought, why would you want to? <laughs> <It's kind of> <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so it, it started with kind of like, what is a tree and how does it work? And then went right through the practical practical side of planting, uh, seed cultivation, collection, um, mm. cultivation, um, growing, and then eventually harvesting and saw, even sawmills. And one, we did one three-month module on forest engineering 
And the idea behind that was if we were sent to the outer limits of the world, we would be able to sort of survive in a in a remote area with the idea we'd be able to build our own roads and build our own bridges. I mean, which was mm. absurd, mm. but it didn't have give you some handy practical knowledge. So, for example, we did some concrete um, mixing and testing and we made little cubes of concrete that we put in a big press to see how strong they were. And so from that I learnt, and this might be a, mess, a lesson for anybody out there who's interested, that the more water you put into the mix of concrete, of, you know, sand and cement, the, the um, weaker it is when it's set. So the strongest concrete is the driest concrete, so long as it's wet enough. Mm. But the more, when it's sloppier, it's easy to handle, but it's not so strong. So um, mm. we learned that. And then we had this exercise to build a little bridge across a, a gap out of, we were set up in teams and, and given balsa wood and, and some doweling and stuff. And we had to design a bridge and build it. And then we tested them to destruction to see who managed to design. You know, they're only about eight inches long, the, these bridges. Um, right. And there was well, a, not, not all building bridges over a canyon and driving no, a Land Rover over it to test it. Not it's quite. more of a theoretical test. Yeah, and it, it's a good thing it was a theoretical <laughs> test because there was one chap who was a... What was he, an architect or something? He was a mature student and he was way ahead of us on everything. And his design was very sophisticated. It was laminated sheets of stuff. But anyway, it was very strong, sort of vertically. You could hang a lot of weight on it. But the problem was it wasn't stable laterally. So as soon as he hung weight on it, it twisted over. So the the strength of of it was gone and it just snapped with a very Mm -hmm. light weight, which was a lesson in itself. So so the whole course was going right the way through. And it it sort of gave you a a long-term planning idea because in in the UK particularly, um, the forestry cycle, you know, might be 60 to 100 years. Mm. Um, And I just thought, I want something more interesting, more quicker, more, Mm. you know, I want to pass my test in two weeks. I I want something more than it's going to take 60. You want to see see change and see results. Yeah. And interestingly enough, just in brackets, when I got to Zambia, I discovered that eucalyptus trees out there grew so big, you couldn't put your arms around them in 10 years. So that was a bit more interesting. It is really, it's really interesting, that idea of, um, of working in a field, (laughs) Or a forest that that's uh, that it just means that you don't see the fruits of your labour ever really in its in its proper sense. Like if you're mm. if you're planting a whole forest, it won't feel like a proper forest until it's too late for you to go and no, enjoy it. Exactly, it's, it's really yeah. But some, I mean, you know, somebody's got to do it, or, so, or I suppose the trees can do it a lot of the time. But just interesting. It was making me think about. Um, I think that this has come up quite a lot through our chats, but the sort of you know, you're making decisions that, that then influence the rest of your life, which sometimes you have you you haven't necessarily like chosen those decisions or you, like they're not as thought through as I think you might or I might want to think a sort of life decision would be. Because mm. um, I've been doing a lot of um, workshops recently with people who are kind of either just getting their A-levels or sort of just about to go to university. And so very much in that kind of... I'm having to pick sort of where my life is going to head. Mm. And uh, it's so, it's kind of, it's so interesting more and more you sort of realise, and I guess the older you get and the more you do, like those decisions aren't as big as they sort of feel at the time because just that you, you can chop and change. Mm. And things will come out of either either way that whatever it is goes. Like if, you, if you're trying to decide between maths and physics for your A-levels, 
Yeah. If you do one, something will happen. If you do the other, something else will happen. It's not like nothing happens or mm. one is necessarily better than the other. It's all a big spiral of mess. <laughs> That's what we've learned. It's just a random spiral. I mean, certainly from our kind of background and where we happen to have been born, you know, we have got lots of choices as a result of different mm. things that happen to us, which is, mm. you know, it's, it's the norm for us and we don't necessarily consider it, but that, that is a great thing. Um, and, you know, that doesn't mean at all. I mean, I'm still trying to decide what to do when I grow up, if the truth be known, because I, I really, <laughs> there's all sorts of things I'd like to do still. Um, but life took over a bit, really. I told, did I, I'm sure I told you that when um, we went to go and give our, like, notice of marriage and they ask you about what your parents' careers are, and I, I was really quite stumped about what to say for you. <laughs> I was like, I don't know, I don't know what, because I, I think it's for, um, like, family history records, I guess, is the, I think that's the only reason they sort of ask you. Yes, yeah. And I was sort of trying to be like, what? I don't know what to say that sort of accurately... Mm. Jack of all trades. It'll be a real a real interesting thing. I wonder if they'll change that in the future of, like, not, not needing to pick one job or something. Because mm. you think... Well, I feel like a lot of people do a lot of different jobs uh, over their lives now, whereas maybe it was less common to ch- chop and change in years gone by. Yeah, it's a hangover from, from when you sort of signed up for... I mean, I have a good friend who's way, way past retirement now. And his, his father said to him, as soon as he was 15, right, you're off down the factory in Leamington to, Potting, to Potterton's. And he worked there 45 years, I think, until he retired. And that's, that was his mm. job. Mm. What, um, sorry, this is a question from earlier, but what, are we, was it like early 80s that you were going to university or, or late 70s or something? It was 79 to 82, yeah, yeah. Oh, spot, spot mm-hmm. on, thank you very much. You absolutely <laughs> spot on, yeah. But I think my, my, neither of my parents had the chance to go and do further study when they were young, mostly because of the war, um, Second World War. And I think my dad was always particularly proud that um, I'd gone and done forestry because to his dying day, whenever he wrote me a letter, which he did quite often because I was overseas, he used to address it to Stephen J. Clark, brackets, BSC, FOR. No, sorry, BSC, brackets, BSC brackets FOR, which is is the way it's supposed to be written, kind mm. of thing. But mm. I mean, it was never just BSC; it was BSC FOR. FOR. So, oh, that's so nice. But I always used to sort of downplay the FOR because I thought it put kind of. I mean, what everybody used to say when I said what I studied or what I did um, was they say, "Oh, you're a lumberjack." Is is everybody? I mean, it was like mm. boring. It was so often that people said mm. crack that joke. But behind that was a sort of a, I mean, a slight prejudice maybe about about what forestry is. So I used to downplay it, thinking it, it probably would, would um, limit my chances. But I wouldn't do that now. I'd be proud of it mm. because, um, I mean, it's... And, uh, you know, as yeah, as we'll see next time, the, the forestry in Zambia is critical to its survival as a country. Um, and uh, so it felt like it was something more useful. Although mm. nowadays I would say that the idea of sending a 22-year-old to teach anybody anything is is mad 
But at the time... Although, to hark back to your earlier point, when you give people responsibility that you don't expect them to be able to handle, they often step up. Yeah, that is true. But don't I think... this and the 22-year-olds, they're all primary well, no, school category. That is very very good point. <laughs> Although I think teaching people things is perhaps a, is a slightly different category um, in a way. But anyway, you'll hear, hear all about that next time. <laughs> and how, how well it went. <laughs> yeah, the adventures. Yeah. And um, do you think forestry influences what you do now? Like, as in, do you think that course like helps the work you do now or, or well it's very funny because um there's there's two things that spring to mind there and one is um, mutz said to me the other day she said um you realize that you've achieved what you always wanted when you went to study forestry don't you because i went to study forestry because mm. i liked working outdoors but mm. by the time you've gone to degree level you sort of trained yourself out of being an outdoor worker you, you're into sort of management and office work and that didn't interest me at all so, but now, um, 40 years on, I'm an accidental gardener and uh, I'm working outdoors. And to answer your question, I, I do use that knowledge. I mean, probably mostly because of my chainsaw activities, because although we didn't do any chainsaw... <laughs> <My> chainsaw activities. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a, it's a skill that you've used over so many times over the years. It is, years. but that, that didn't come from my degree, but it came from the fact that I went oh. to work for a forestry contractor before I went to study the degree, so I thought it would be useful to have a bit of knowledge. Mm. And mm. they taught me how to use a chainsaw, and I find out here in France where everybody has got more land than they deserve, really, including us, um, everybody comes out and buys a chainsaw and then they don't really know how to use it. And, and so I get called in to sort of... Uh, mm. so, so I do use it, actually. And, and on the, 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 the sort of practical, technical side, I've used that throughout my life when we, when we built walls and things, the, the mixing of concrete and um, even sort of, sort of design of structures. Um, I think I, I learned from that course but not in the way I expected to, perhaps. Hmm, that's great. We now know what you should have put on your wedding bands thing on Stephen's <laughs> job description was accidental gardener. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, if they'll, if they'll accept that, next time I'll, uh, I'll, I'll do that. Next, next time. Next time. With, <laughs> with the same person, because we're going to have to re-give, we're going to have to re-give our notice because we yeah. didn't end up sadly getting married, but we will do it. Sadly getting married. Oh my, this is gone. We didn't end up sadly (laughs) Sadly getting married. (laughs) Well, you didn't. It's like like Eric Morecambe, all the right words, but not in the right order, I think. Something something (laughs) like that. We didn't end up getting sadly married. Or happily married, sadly. (laughs) Or... No, never mind. But yes. Too many many jokes. Just should... should, The PS would be that... um, Mm. uh, when I left Aberdeen for the last time, I offered this chap a lift who lived in Guildford, um, next door to where, where I was going. And we set off merrily with an OU060 packed to the gunnels with with all sorts of detritus that you have when you finish <laughs> university, which you all know, will know that. And we set off from Aberdeen. And um, as we drove out of the car park, I could hear a little... And then uh, sort of as we drove further it began to sort of and it got louder and louder and then there's a town called Stonehaven or Stonehaven as they say um which is probably 15 20 miles out of Aberdeen I think and by then it sounded like somebody was sitting on the top of the hammer a ha- uh, car with a hammer banging on the roof it was like <laughs> so loud so I looked at this chap Dave and I said we're, we're definitely not going to make it to Guildford so we turned around went back to Aberdeen and I parked it up in the car park and we borrowed carrier bags from everywhere and just 
somehow got to the station in a taxi and, and came home by train and abandoned the car in in the university car park. I had I sort of had plans to do something about it, but then I got posted off to Africa and it kind of went out of my head. So you might think that along with the puddle in the dining room, there's also a car in the car park. But actually, it didn't quite work out like that because um, a few months later, my dad got a letter from Aberdeen University saying that a car had been abandoned in the car park uh, in my name and it would be disposed of and the um, charges of disposal would be forwarded on. So he wrote them a letter in the only way that John Clark could, sort of saying that, I'd gone off to save the world and didn't, he didn't, you know, it was very difficult for me to act. Anyway, presumably the car was scrapped, which is a great shame. And, uh, but no charges were ever sent for it. So that was the end of OEO 60 and the end of my career in Aberdeen. Oh. But the start of a whole new chapter. Exactly. Tune in next week to <laughs> the podcast. <Pod-clarks. laughs> Excellent. Well, that, Excellent. Was, that was great. I really enjoyed hearing about the university car based things and it's so it's so nice that mum's totally right that yeah you've you've ended up doing what you wanted to do yeah. <laughs> I know I well, mean not was... to say that you didn't want to do any of the stuff in the middle but no it's, but it's a very nice thought sometimes I it needs somebody to remind you of things to to realize it so yeah mm. good old mutts good old mutts yeah thanks everybody yeah thanks well we will see you next month for another episode of the Podclarks, follow us on at the Podclarks on all the social medias. I'm pretty sure, uh, and give us a listen, give us a rating, let us know what you're thinking. If there is anyone listening by any chance who is residing in Dunbar Hall, uh, we would absolutely <laughs> love to know if there is an oil Please. spillage uh, in the middle of a picture. A picture, yeah. So you can get e- in touch. you can email us at thepodclarks at gmail Send us your photos there. <laughs> We'll be besieged with oil puddles from all around the world. You wait. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't this oil puddle? Why not? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And me, it is goodbye from. Bye. Bye.